The scripture reading today for the sermon is out of John 7, 19 through 36. So read along with me. Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Why do you seek to kill me? The crowd answered, you have a demon who is seeking to kill you. Jesus answered them, I did one work and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it is from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision so that the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is not this the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? But we know where this man comes from, and when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from, but I have not come of my own accord. He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Yet many of the people believed in him. They said, When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him, and the chief priests and Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Jesus then said, I will be with you a little longer, and then I am going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. The Jews said to one another, Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, You will seek me, and you will not find me, and where I am, you cannot come? Please pray with me. God, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for your goodness and graciousness to us. Um, I just pray that we would see your authority in our lives and that we would search and desire to know more of you. I pray that you would be with Pastor Jeremy this morning, guide his words, um, his time in the word with us this morning. I pray that we would earnestly seek you and learn more about you, God. And if there's anybody who does not know you, I pray that they would um, see your goodness and um, the worth in their life, God. I pray that we would turn up our eyes upon you and that we would look away from the things of this world. Praise things in your name. Amen. Jack and Deb for reading the scripture and praying for us. I invite you to keep your Bibles open as we continue in John chapter 7. We're kind of dropping in in the middle of our story this morning that we began last week of Jesus when he goes up to the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths. We had a tent in our backyard this week. Two of our kids had ideas of sleeping in that tent. Now, I, I helped set up that tent. I had no desire to sleep in that tent. I had a comfy bed about 25 feet away. Why in the world would I choose to sleep on the ground? Well, here in Jerusalem at this time, this is the festival of booths. It's a bunch of tents that they came in and they would sleep in. This is one of the three key festivals in Jewish life that required Jewish males who lived within 20 miles to travel to Jerusalem. Let me pause here. Those of you who have traveled 20 miles with kids, 
that are in children's church, I'm going to let you go because I forgot to do that a minute ago. If you came farther than 20 miles and you have kids with children's church, uh, we'll let you go as well. Uh, I apologize. Thank you for standing up, Marianne, or I would have completely forgotten this morning, I'm pretty sure. So, this is one of those important festivals in Jewish life. And in that festival, it was mandatory for Jewish people to sleep in tents. Now you say, why? Well, it was a remembrance. They were to remember the time they were wandering in the wilderness after God had freed them from Egyptian slavery and before they came into the promised land. Now, that was about 1,300-ish years before this moment in Jerusalem's life. And yet, here they are celebrating this festival. Now, that celebration was to remind them is to serve as a reminder that God provided everything they needed while they were wandering in the wilderness. Think about this massive group of people. They're not growing crops. But yet God provides for them. So this this festival in Jewish life is a reminder that God provided. Now, as you remember the wilderness wandering, here's what God is doing. He's providing. What are the people doing? Grumbling, complaining, not believing in God. So Israel was not on its best behavior while it was out in the wilderness. And yet here is God providing. Here they are not trusting God. So now when we come into John chapter 7, here's this celebration of God's provision when they didn't deserve it. And here at this celebration... God has provided them the one who would do everything they needed to secure reconciliation with God, forgiveness of sins. Jesus is God in the flesh before them. And what does this generation do? They don't believe. They miss who Jesus is. So the ultimate question that our text raises is, who is Jesus? We asked that question last week. As we looked at John 7, 1 through 18, 19, we're coming back to it this week. Who is Jesus? Now, there are big, important questions in life that need to be answered. What major should I choose? Where should I live? Who should I marry? Important questions. But they're not the most important. You need to answer in your life, who is Jesus? That question is not at the periphery of what's important in life. It's at the center of it. And so in our text, I see some other questions that might help us as we try to answer that question, who is Jesus? So the first question I'm asking is, who makes people whole? Jesus, in verse 19, is calling out the hypocrisy of the Jewish leaders. Here they are. They claim to keep the law, and yet they want to kill Jesus. They want to murder him. Folks, that is breaking the law. That's kind of a big one, right? Do not murder right there in the top 10 in Jewish life of things they should not do. Yet in seeking to kill him, they are breaking the law. And the crowd responds to Jesus' question, then why do you seek to kill me with this? You have a demon. What they mean is, Jesus, you're being way too paranoid. Here we are, 
at this big gathering. We're out in public. You're teaching at the most central, most important location, the temple, in Jewish life. Who is trying to kill you? And Jesus will respond to that. I think this is interesting. He, rest- he responds by talking about Sabbath and, and circumcision, which on the surface might seem odd to us, might seem like an odd jump in topic. But in this, Jesus refers to one work he's done. Now let's push pause here. We know Jesus has done lots of works, right? He's done many signs, many miracles in his ministry. Why does he here refer to one? Well, if you recall, he's been in Galilee, kind of the countryside. He's been doing miracles for about a year. He's been ministering there for a year. And so the miracle that he's referring to here is the one that took place in John chapter 5. This is where he healed a lame man. And the reason he's referring to it here is because he did it in Jerusalem. And that's where they are now. So this crowd would have been familiar with that miracle. Now, there was controversy, if you recall, surrounding that miracle. The controversy is... Jesus did it on Sabbath day. And that was a problem for them. And so they, when they protest, when they don't like that he healed on Sabbath, Jesus responds in a way that's going to further annoy them. In John chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Here's what he's saying. It is good and right for God the Father to uphold the universe every second so he can work on Sabbath. And I am equal to the Father, and it's right for me to be working. Now, how do you suppose the Jewish leaders responded to that? Do you think they said, you know what, he's got a good point. I'd like to learn more about that from him. Maybe I should take him out for coffee and hear from him. That is not how they responded. Here's how they responded in verse 18. This is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him. Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So now when we come back into chapter 7, Jesus goes back to that miracle, back to referring to his healing on the Sabbath. And he is going to justify healing on the Sabbath by alluding to circumcision. All right, so let's, let's try to get a framework here. Here is the fourth commandment given to the people of Israel next to this chapter 20 remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy six days shall you labor and do all your work but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God so clearly fourth commandment calls for the people to observe the Sabbath and they took that really seriously and made laws around that law and and made all these steps to try to protect the Sabbath even if they didn't always keep it rightly. But that's not the only law in Israel. The law also said about a male child in Leviticus chapter 12, verse 3, and on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. Now, here's the thing. Here's what Jesus is alluding to. If that eighth day fell on the Sabbath, guess what they did? They didn't wait till the next day. They circumcised on the Sabbath. So when those two laws came into conflict, that circumcision and Sabbath keeping, 
They didn't wait. In fact, it was right to perform the circumcision on the Sabbath. So the circumcision law would have taken precedent over the Sabbath such that when they circumcised on the Sabbath day, they weren't breaking the Sabbath. They were doing what was right. So circumcision was viewed as completing what was necessary in the male child's body according to ceremonial law. Okay, you say that, that's a lot for me to understand about circumcision and Sabbath. Here's what Jesus is doing in this story with that. He is moving to an argument of how much more with that. In healing the lame man, he is saying, look, if it's right on a Sabbath day to basically fix one part of a person, how much more is it right for me to heal this man's entire body and make him whole? So if, if it was a blessing to circumcise one part of the body, how much more when I erase from this man's body the curse of disease that's been plaguing him? So Jesus is saying, if these two laws came into, into, in, into opposition, if you're keeping the greater one, you're doing what is right. Or keeping the one more pertinent in this situation, you're doing what was right. When Amanda and I lived in Arizona, we had several kids there. Now, Amanda is... When she goes in the store, she's, she's in a hurry. She's an express lane type of lady. Now, if that's true in stores, it's also true of her delivering babies. She wants to get in, get it done, get out. Uh, we we uh, lived about an hour from Tucson Medical Center, and by the time Rachel came along, I knew my wife. I knew she was going to go into labor about 1 in the morning. And I knew that we had to leave pretty soon after that first contraction so that we could get there in time. And so we get on the road, go to the hospital soon, and uh, not wanting to deliver a baby in my own vehicle, I might have gone over the speed limit. Nobody's gasping at this moment, which I appreciate that. Uh, Grant Road in Tucson had lots of potholes. Amanda felt every one of them that I hit. So let's just say, hypothetically, if the speed limit on that road is 45, say I'm going 60. Every other day, I'd be wrong. Not that night. If a policeman pulled me over for speeding, I can tell you he doesn't want to deliver a baby in my truck either. So not only is he not going to give me a ticket, he might volunteer to escort me to the hospital and get me there quickly. So... He would not say I'm wrong. He would say I'm right in getting my wife there in a hurry. Jesus did not heal this man on the Sabbath to break the Sabbath. Now that's what the Jewish leaders accused him of, Sabbath breaker. And they're, they're angry. That word in verse 23, that angry word, that's a strong word. It's a rare word in the New Testament. And Jesus, uh, uh, the Jewish leaders are so angry. And what their thought is is, that guy waited 38 years to be healed. Jesus, you could have waited till Sunday instead of Saturday to heal that man. And Jesus is saying, uh-uh. If you really understood 
what Sabbath was, that Sabbath is about rest, but Sabbath is about wholeness, you would understand that not only am I not wrong for healing on the Sabbath, I am right and justified. If you fix a baby on the Sabbath, I should be able to make this man healed, make him whole. So I want you to understand, Jesus is not saying that Sabbath, that Sabbath stuff doesn't matter, not important, I'm setting it aside uh, in terms of this current law. No, he's saying, what I'm doing, my very life, I am fulfilling Sabbath. So this man's physical healing should point us to spiritual wholeness that only Jesus can give. Jesus came to make people whole. If you think about Sabbath, Sabbath is about rest. Now the author of Hebrews is going to take that topic of rest and say true rest comes through faith in Jesus. Just very quickly in Hebrews 4.3 we see, For we who have believed enter that rest. Church, Jesus is our rest. Now, I'm, I'm not talking merely about a break from work. I'm not talking about eight hours of sleep at night. Those, those, those things are great. Take a day off work. One out of seven days anyway, we should do those things. But I want you to see ultimate rest. This is what it is. Peace and joy and wholeness and hope. And those come only through faith in Jesus. So I just want to say, if you had a hard time this morning singing, it is well with my soul. Maybe you came in carrying some burdens. Maybe we can't see that 100-pound weight on your shoulders. But it is there. I just want to say, find rest in Jesus. Not your ability, not your accomplishments. Find rest in Jesus. In Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, Jesus says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Listen, there are tired people that Jesus is speaking to, but their fatigue is coming not from lack of sleep. Their fatigue is coming from trying so hard on their own to make themselves right with God. And Jesus is saying, leave that behind. Come to me. The prevailing idea in our culture is if there's a way to heaven, it'll be through me being a good person. I just want to say that's not going to get you there. None of us are good enough. We need Jesus. We need his rest. Even these Jewish leaders, these really super spiritual guys, if you ask them, they're verse 19. They're lawbreakers. They want to kill Jesus. They're guilty. They need grace. And here is the, the rest in a person in front of them. And they missed it. They missed who Jesus is. They missed that he alone brings wholeness. All right, well, second question, understanding who Jesus is. Where did Jesus come from? Now, there are several groups present 
in our text this morning. In this chapter, in verse 20, the crowd thinks Jesus is crazy to say people are trying to kill him. But if you look in verse 25, there's a group there that know the authorities want to kill Jesus. So how do we understand, no, they don't want to kill him, and they say, oh yeah, he, they want to kill him. Well, there's different crowds. The crowd in verse 20 are those who travel to Jerusalem from other places. They don't know Jerusalem's politics. They don't know what's going on behind the scenes. But what we find in verse 25, these are the locals. They're familiar with the Jewish leaders. And what they're surprised by in our text here is, here's this guy that they want to kill. And yet this guy is publicly teaching large groups of people in the temple, the most important place in Jewish life, and nobody's saying a word to him. That's what surprises them. And they just reason, I assume, my study, that maybe they got some information, maybe they've changed their minds about Jesus. That's why they're not saying anything to him. But then they raise this objection. We don't know where he comes from. We know where this man comes from. When the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. So they disqualify Jesus as the Christ since they know his background. Now that should baffle us. That should cause us to say, what in the world are they thinking here? Because we know like in the book of Micah, the prophet said that Jesus, they didn't use his name, but he would come from Bethlehem. So shouldn't our knowledge of Jesus' background support that he's the Christ rather than detract from him being the Christ? Now, it's true, they may not know. I mean, I'm sure Jesus doesn't have his birth certificate and show he was born in Bethlehem. So they may not even know Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus of Galilee is actually born in Bethlehem. But I don't think that's their issue. At this time, there was an expectation in Israel that Messiah would be unknown until one day he shows up and he rescues Israel. In fact, the Messiah may not even know he's the Messiah until that day God reveals it to him but he will appear he will rescue and there will be no debate about whether he's the messiah it will be obvious and here's their issue jesus didn't just show up one day and he rescued them he has had an ongoing ministry and the reality is there's a lot of division over jesus they thought messiah will show up it'll be unanimous it'll be obvious we'll see him but you see even in this story there are some here who appear to believe some who want to kill him, some who think he's leading people astray, and so they think he cannot be Messiah because there's so much division. So how will Jesus respond to that? In verse 28, we see he proclaimed. Now, some of your translations, it may say he cried out. This means an important statement is coming. Jesus is going to say something publicly, and here's the thing. Everything in his response to them is geared around this fact. God sent him. So here's, here's how you might could look at verse 28b. You know me and you know where I come from. You might say that as Jesus saying, you all think you know, but you really don't know. Here's what you need to know. And look how he stresses over and over that he came from God. Look at this. I have not come of my own accord. 
one. Number two, he who sent me is true. Now, a good way to read that is there's a bunch of monotheists he's talking to. He's saying, there is one true God, you know that, and that God, he is the one who sent me. Okay, so that's two things centered around that. I know him for I come from him. That's the third thing. And number four, and he sent me. So Jesus wants us to understand. He came from God. He is telling that to the Jewish leaders. He is telling that to us. And then think about this weighty indictment. It's up there in verse 28b. This is what Jesus says to to this group of people who think they have the answers about God. He says to them, He who sent me is true, and him you do not know. Now, they could quote you books of the Old Testament. They could recite to us facts about God's character. And yet Jesus says to them, you don't know God. How can Jesus say that? How can Jesus say that to good Jewish people? And here's how. The only people who really know God, the only people who are in right relationship with God, are those who put their faith in Jesus. That is true in John chapter 7. It's true in 500 A.D. It's true in 1,000 A.D. It's true in 2023 American culture. It'll be true in 3,000 years if Jesus waits to come back. This is true for every age, for every people, for every nation, for every language. Here's, here's where we are today. We live in a culture that's very secular, but we also live in a culture that emphasizes a spirituality. But it's a very generic spirituality. And the prevailing idea about spirituality in our culture is that everyone can have their own religious opinions and no one's opinion should be invalid. So I I read theology, but try to read things in our culture as well. And I saw an article, haven't read it all, just skimmed even a page or so. I saw an article entitled, Magic Mushrooms about psychedelics. Now I have your interest. Why in the world is our pastor telling us about an article about psychedelics? Well, the tie-in was some religious leaders, those who profess to be Christians, are invoking the use of psychedelic drugs to deepen their faith. The article described one religious leader offering another a psychedelic in a chalice like it was a sacrament. And the man took it and claimed to have this incredible religious experience. There is a great theological word for that. It is baloney. He just got high, folks. Can we just admit that? That's that's what happened there. But how many people would look at an article like that and say, Well, maybe there's some truth to that. Maybe that type of spirituality fits me. Maybe that's something I should explore. Jesus doesn't play that game. 
in John chapter 7 or today. He won't compromise on this truth. The only way that we know God is through faith in Jesus. And Jesus doesn't say those type things to be mean. He says them because He loves people. He wants them to be made right with God. He wants their sins to be forgiven. And He knows the only way is to come through Him. Jesus never said mushrooms are the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father except through them. He said about Himself, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. So in this world filled with opinions about how do we know God? How are we made right with God? Please hear Jesus' words. It's only those who know Him. Jesus says in Matthew eleven twenty seven, 27, All things have been handed over to me by my Father. And no one knows the Son except the Father. And no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. Alright, so here's where we are. Jesus has declared His equality with God. And He's told these people that are going through kind of the religious symbolisms and ceremonies and, and, and going through the motions. Tell them they don't know God because they had not come to Him. And, and they don't love it. Let's just say they don't love it. And we see verse 30, they, they kind of heightened up their attempts to arrest him. And then we get this incredible detail in verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest, arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him. No one laid a hand. They, they're coming to arrest him. I assume there's more than one. And no one laid a hand on him. Doesn't that leave you wanting to see what happened? Like, don't you want more, like, how did they not lay a hand on him? What that looked like? Well, we don't get the how, but we do get the why. And here is the why. For his hour, because his hour had not yet come. Why did they not lay a hand on him? His hour had not yet come. That's the explanation that we get. And the hour in the Gospel of John refers to Jesus' crucifixion. So here's what I want you to see. It will not happen one second before God ordains it to happen. But I also want you to see this. The crucifixion is God's plan. This is God's sovereign plan. Yeah, it, it may be men who come to arrest him and eventually put him on the cross and kill him, but that is the plan of God. Acts 2.23 says this. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Who's behind it all? God. Definite plan and foreknowledge. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. So this is God's sovereign purpose that Jesus dies on the cross. And we need to hear that for our comfort. God planned to send Jesus. Jesus willingly went to the cross to die for us, to redeem us. And if God is sovereign over Jesus' death and He's sovereign over Jesus' resurrection, He's sovereign in my life. And He's sovereign in your life. I know the world is raging. There's war in Israel. There is secularism in America. And God has not for one second in the midst of all that, abdicated his throne. God is in control. He reigns. 
Believer, whatever circumstances are going on in your life, know this. Number one, God is in charge. And believer, know this. Number two, nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. If he loved you enough to die on the cross for you, he loves you in this moment, in that pew you're sitting in right now. Now there's a group here that seem to believe in him. We see that in verse 31. And the religious leaders hear about that, and again, they don't like it. Uh, Sorry, the former group was kind of a just disorganized, they're upset, they they go after him. This group seems to be a little more systematic about their arrest. And Jesus says, so here they're coming to him to arrest him, and Jesus says this, I will be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And they have no idea what he is talking about. Like it does not compute with them. So one, they didn't understand where he's from. Now they don't understand where he is going. To them, this sounds like nonsense. Now what does Jesus mean? Jesus means he's going to go back to the Father. He's ultimately going to be in heaven. That's what he's saying there. But his path to heaven is always meant to be the cross. So he's going to the cross to do the work of atonement to redeem people, to die, Jesus will resurrect, or God will resurrect him, and then he will go back to the Father. That's what Jesus means here. So the cross is his purpose. It is not his end. Now, they completely miss it. Now, in their confusion, here's, what they, here's their question. Jesus says this. Here's their, their question. Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks and teach the Greeks? I, I, don't, I don't know why they came up with that. I don't know why that question came, except that God is sovereign even over the opponents of Jesus' words. They think Jesus is going to go to Gentile lands, that he's going to teach Greeks. Here's what we uh, want to take from that. Jesus went to the cross as a sinners like me, And like you, he went to the cross to save sinners in Australia and North Korea and Saudi Arabia. And here are these Jewish leaders saying, is he going to the Greeks? I think we've gotten a hint here. I think we need to look ahead in John's gospel. There's one other time in John's gospel that Greeks are mentioned. So right here we're at the Festival of Booths. And then six months later, there will be Passover. And it's at this festival we get this report in John chapter 12, verses 20 and following. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethesda in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So here we are at Passover. Jesus is about to go to the cross. And who shows up? It's Greeks. Who have the religious leaders thought Jesus might go to? Greeks. All right, here's the next verses. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Now, you remember in chapter 7, it was not Jesus' hour. His hour had not yet come. 
But when the nations, when the Greeks come looking for Jesus, now his hour has arrived. It's the hour of him going to the cross to pay the penalty for our sins. To die on the cross for sinners, Jewish sinners, Gentile sinners, sinners in the first century, sinners in 2023. Jesus went there to pay the debt for our sin. And when he does, when he bears God's wrath, when he pays that debt in full, rises from the dead, goes back to heaven, what do we see? We see disciples taking the gospel to the nations, taking the gospel to the Gentiles. So now where do we go in light of Jesus, who he is and what he's done? We take this good news of who Jesus is and we take it to our neighbors and we take it to the nations because they too need to be reconciled to God. We are a missional people, church. Charles Spurgeon said, every believer, every Christian is either a missionary or an imposter. That's pretty blunt, isn't it? So I, I do want you to consider, is God calling you vocationally to a life of missions? Please consider, is God doing that? But that is also not your only option to vocational missions. Every believer is to live on mission, seeking to share the good news of a crucified and risen Savior who can be the one mediator between God and man. Ed Stetzer said, the church is sent on a mission by Jesus. It's not that the church has a mission, but rather that the mission has a church. We join Jesus on his mission, telling good news to lost people that they can be forgiven. So in verse 24, Jesus calls us to make a right judgment about him. Don't just judge on appearances, make a right judgment. In chapter 7, the overarching question is, who is Jesus? And most everybody in the chapter got the answer wrong. They judge by wrong appearances. Jesus says in verse 34, you will seek me, and you will not find me. They're only thinking physical seeking. They're not thinking of what it means to see Jesus through eyes of faith, a right judgment. And Jesus spells out more clearly what verse 34 means in chapter 8, verse 21. I'm going away and you will seek me and you will die in your sin. Church, I don't want any person or sound of our voices to die in their sin. We recognize the world's greatest need is to hear the good news of Jesus. And our IMB reminds us that 59% of our world has little to no access to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our world needs the gospel. But so do your neighbors. We just saw a beautiful picture of that this morning in baptism. That Lee saw Taylor have some questions. And ultimately, all those questions boil down to the most important one. Who is Jesus? And what did Lee do? Told her the good news. And today we celebrate new life in Christ. May we see that so much more often. God has given you a people that you have influence with. Maybe it's family, maybe it's friends, maybe it's coworkers. Will you go and be salt and light for Jesus to them? Help them rightly answer the question. Who is Jesus? Let's pray.
Father, we thank you for the good news of the gospel. We thank you for salvation that comes only through faith in Jesus Christ. God, we thank you for the beautiful picture of baptism that we celebrated this morning. Thank you for Taylor's profession of faith. Thank you for uh, what we we get this, we're reminded of, we celebrate with, or remind in our own lives that everything we have spiritually is from Jesus, is because of grace. God, thank you for the good news of the gospel, transforming lives in this room. And God, we pray for more and more lives to be transformed through faith in Jesus. God, may we see, take advantage of opportunities you give us to share that good news. God, may we. Be sensitive to your spirit's leading. And God, may even today, if there's someone who has not yet put their faith in Christ, that today will be the day they do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.